we're in John chapter 21. Do you know who Peter was? Do you know what Peter did for a living? Children, children everywhere. Do you know what Peter did for a living? He was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. That's what Peter did for a living. And when Jesus met Peter, or when Peter met Jesus, Peter was fishing. He was washing his nets. He had just been fishing because that's what he did for a living. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Now, when we read this whole scripture, and I'll do that in just a moment, we're going to see that Peter had been out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. And they had fished all night long. And it was, huh? Yeah, I bet you have. And when it was morning time, Jesus appears on the shore and he calls out to them, children, do you have any food? And they said, no. They didn't catch any fish that night. And Jesus says, cast your net on the right side. And they did, and they caught so many fish that they could barely pull them in. And the Bible says that they caught 153 large fish. And then Jesus tells Peter, he says, bring some of those fish here. And then when Peter comes and they eat breakfast. And it says, after they'd eaten, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love these? Do you love me more than these? Now, some people believe that Jesus was talking about the fish. Do you love these fish more than me? Some people think maybe he was talking about the other disciples. Do you love these disciples who he was fishing with more than these? But in one sense, it doesn't really matter because if there's anything or anyone that we love more than Jesus, that's not good. And Jesus was asking his disciples, and he called them children, children, do you have any food? And he's asking Peter, one of his children, do you love me more than these? And so the question I have for all of you kids, all of you kids, little kids, listen. Are you listening? Look at me and listen. Do you love Jesus more than, can you fill in the blank? Coloring? Candy? Your video game? What do you love to do? What do you love? What would you trade Jesus for to have? Is there anything you would trade Jesus for in order to have? Now, it's easy to say that now. And we're going to talk about this. And that's what Peter told Jesus. Jesus, I would never trade you for anything. Jesus, I would never deny you. Jesus, I would never leave you. Jesus, I will even die for you. And do you know Peter said that sincerely, but when Bush came to shove, and Peter was put in a position, and his life was on the line. You know what he did? He denied Jesus. I'll tell you later. And when Jesus comes to him after he's been fishing, this is what Jesus is asking him. Not because Jesus was mad at him, because Jesus wasn't mad at him. What Jesus wanted to do in Peter's life was help Peter realize that there is nothing, there is no one more important than Jesus. But more than that, you know what Jesus wanted Peter to realize? That there is nothing and there is no one that could ever love Peter more than Jesus loved Peter. And that even with all that Peter did to fail Jesus, Jesus still loved him. Peter did not know that. Jesus knew that. And so, you know what? Here's the sad reality. Sometimes you're going to choose things over Jesus. I wish that weren't true. 
I wish you would always choose Jesus first in everything and in every situation. But this is the reality of life. You're going to have situations, not just you children, but all of us, where we're going to be put into a position where we're going to have to choose between something and Jesus. I believe you believe that. And I hope that's always the case. And Peter believed that too. But do you know what? Sometimes that doesn't happen. And when that day comes, when you choose something over Jesus, what I want you to remember from today, what I want you to understand is that even when we do not choose Jesus and we don't always choose Jesus, do you know what? Jesus loves us and Jesus chose us, not because he knew we would choose him, not because he knew that we would love him, not because he knew we would say, I would never choose anyone but Jesus. That's not why Jesus chose us. And this is what Jesus wants Peter to understand. Peter, I know you failed me. I know you were sincere when you promised that you would never deny me, that you would even die for me, but you failed. And now you believe that somehow I love you less, or I can use you less. But what Peter wanted Jesus to know is that I still love you, I have always loved you, and I will still use you even though you failed. Do you know that Jesus overcomes our failures? Now, should we always choose Jesus? 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 We should. Should we? Yes, but when we don't, when we fail, we need to remember something that Jesus told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to overcome our failure. And God's love for us never, ever, 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 ever fails, even when we do. That's what Jesus wanted Peter to know. So it doesn't matter if it's fish or people or games or candy or whatever it is. Choose Jesus. And when you don't, remember his love never fails. His grace always overcomes our failure. Do you believe that? Children, do you believe that? I want you to remember that, okay? I want you to remember that. Remind your parents of that too, okay? Sometimes they might need to be reminded of that. I do. I need to be reminded of that. It's not just children that need to know that. We all need to know that. All of God's children, young and old, need to know that. All right, are you ready? John chapter 21. So since Easter, we've been looking at the various accounts of the Gospels, uh, the appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And this, we're going to do this up through Pentecost. So Pentecost is going to be the last weekend of this month. And uh, next week, we're going to be in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the encounter of Jesus with his disciples before his ascension, and then the following weekend is Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to look at uh, the fulfillment that was brought at Pentecost. And so today, we're going to look at the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples. This is after Last week, we talked about Jesus showing himself to Thomas. That was the second time. This is now the third time Jesus will have shown himself to his disciples. And remember, the first time, Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus comes back the second time, and he is coming back to make sure Thomas knew that he was resurrected because Thomas wasn't there. And they said, hey, we saw Jesus. And Thomas said, well, I won't believe unless I see but Peter was there all three times. So this is the third time Jesus is showing himself, and this will be the third time that Peter has encountered the risen Lord. And as we look at this account, what I want us to consider, what I want us to look at is the grace of God. So let's read. I'm going to read these 19 verses to you. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, and in this way he showed himself. 
Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Been there, done that. And when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. There is the sun in the morning. Not just the sun in the sky, but the sun on the shore. Jesus is there, and he stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered and said to him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with them. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you are younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. With this, he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you for this picture of grace, this picture so full of so many truths and so many images that speak to us, that encourage us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we, like Peter, would come to know your work of grace overcomes all of our failure, all of our shortcomings. It overcomes all, and it is sufficient for all that you have destined us to be and destined us to do. We thank you for this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is so much here. This is such a wonderful passage of Scripture. There are some things I want to point out before we dive into talking about grace. Well, one thing I want to point out that should be pretty obvious if you were paying attention, uh, that the word grace is not mentioned. It doesn't appear in these 19 verses that I just read to you. 
But though the word grace does not appear, I want you to, to be able to see and to know that the grace of God permeates everything about this exchange between Jesus and Peter. And so this is what I want to focus on today, but I want to draw your attention to some things that are, I think, important. One thing is, if you read this, if you go back and you read this very carefully, you're going to see that Jesus on purpose, because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. Nothing is a coincidence with Jesus. Jesus on purpose has filled this encounter with, with images, with, with realities, things that they're doing, things that are happening there that are calling to remembrance the things that these disciples have experienced with Jesus. So we're going to see this in the way Jesus tells them to, to cast their net on the right side of the boat. We're going to see this when Jesus breaks bread and breaks fish and feeds them. And remember, what is the question Jesus asked when he's standing on the shore? Children, do you have any food? And they said, no. And when they get to the seashore and there's a fire, what's laid there? Well, there is bread and fish. Well, where did that food come from? The same place the loaves and the fishes that were multiplied and fed tens of thousands of people in two different occasions came from. Jesus multiplied them. Jesus manifested them. Jesus took what was there and he multiplied it. Now, whether there were fish and bread there, who knows? But Jesus made it appear there. And Jesus is calling to their remembrance these things. Whether they realize it or not, they're going to realize it before this exchange is over. And so Jesus calls them there, and he says, bring some of those fish that you've caught. And Peter drags this net filled with 153 large fish. And John is careful to tell us that the net was not broken which in and of itself was a miracle. Because in the first encounter, when Jesus tells them to cast their net out again after fishing all night and catching nothing, and they said, it's pointless, and Jesus is like, just humor me, go ahead and do it. And Peter says, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. And he throws his net out, and they catch so many fish that it takes the other boat, and the Bible says the nets begin to break. I think this was a larger catch. And yet, here the nets are not breaking, not because the nets were stronger, but because Jesus is teaching them something about his grace. It was the grace of God that the nets didn't break. It was the grace of God that Peter didn't break. It was the grace of God that any of them did not break in lieu of all that had happened in the recent days and weeks. And Jesus draws his attention to Peter. Why? Because Peter is the disciple who publicly, in front of all the others, said, I will never stumble, even if all of these others stumble. Lord, I will never stumble. I'll never deny you. In fact, I will even die with you. I'll stand with you and die with you if that's what it comes to. And what happened after Jesus was arrested? Jesus is taken in the dark, and Peter follows in secret, trying to find out what's going on, and he's at the court there where they're interrogating Jesus, and people begin to recognize him, and he ends up denying Jesus three times. So do you think, coincidentally, the third time Jesus comes to Peter, he asked Peter these three questions, and specifically he asked him about his love. Now, there's something here, and we've talked about this before. Your English word love is love, but there are two different Greek words here. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I have brotherly affection for you. He doesn't use the same term for love. Jesus, after Peter responds, says to Peter, feed my sheep. 
And then Jesus asked a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter says, Jesus, you know that I have brotherly affection for you. You know I love you. Then Jesus says something different to Peter. He says, it's, it's written, tend my sheep. But this word tend is the same word we get our word shepherd from. It's the same word that pastor comes from. A pastor is just a shepherd. It's the Greek word poimen. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, if you love me, shepherd my sheep, is what Jesus is telling Peter. Don't just feed them, because anyone can feed a sheep, right? But not anyone can shepherd sheep. So yes, feed my sheep. But if you love me, Peter, shepherd my sheep. And again, a third time, Jesus asked Peter, but he asked him differently this time. The first two times, he says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with an unconditional, undying love, the same kind of love I have for you? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I have brotherly affection for you. In other words, Peter says, Lord, you know that I don't have that kind of love. I've proved it when I denied you three times. I proved it when I could not fulfill my word to you and stand with you even at my death. I proved, Lord, that I am unreliable and that I do not have the same kind of love that you have for me. Do you know that God always meets us where we are? Talking about grace, do you know there is no other religion in world history, past, present, and I would venture to say future, that deals with grace the way Christianity deals with grace. Christianity is a religion of grace. It is a faith that is built upon grace. There is no other world religion that is built upon grace. They're all built upon works. They all demand that you meet God where he is. God is too important. God is too holy. God is too righteous. The Muslim cannot believe that God would come to earth and allow himself to be crucified. They cannot believe in that kind of a God. The Buddhists don't even believe in God. They, do you realize that? Buddhists don't believe in God. Buddha didn't profess to be a god. Buddhism is not about belief in a god. It's a way of life. It's not about God. It's just about a way of life to have a better life here on this earth. Hindus believe in all kinds of gods, millions of them. And you keep coming back again and again and again trying to get it right. trying to reach that state of ultimate consciousness, trying to reach that state of ultimate goodness. Climbing the mountain, trying to find God. That's every religion in the world save one, Christianity. What the rulers of this world could not conceive of is that God... would come to us. That God would shed the glory of heaven and put on human flesh and humble himself and become obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, even to the point of becoming a curse. Muslims can't believe that. They can't accept that. God could never become a curse. That's blasphemy to a Muslim. Yet that's exactly what the Bible tells us Jesus did. And why? Was it because Jesus got tired of waiting for us? Is it because God is up in heaven in his triune godness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the father looks over to the son and says, how long are we going to wait for these people? I don't think they're ever going to make it to us. 
Every time they try, they fail. They try, they fail. They try, they fail. And then Jesus says, you know what, Father, maybe I should go to them. That is exactly how it did not happen. We were never meant to get to God. God didn't create us to see whether we could climb the mountain and get to him. God created us knowing that we could never achieve his righteousness, his holiness, and his perfection apart from his grace. The plan before creation was always Jesus, the Lamb of God slain, Jesus crucified, Jesus leaving heaven and coming to us because we were hopelessly separated from him. It was always the plan. It was always and is always about God's grace. There is no other way to be saved. Don't for one moment think that you are adding one thing to your salvation because there is nothing you can add to your salvation. Your salvation, holy and completely, 110% belongs to God and we and no other human can take any credit for it. It is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. That's it. And Jesus here in this exchange with his disciples, in particular with Peter, is reminding Peter of the grace that called him, the grace that Peter responded to, the grace that saved him is the grace that will restore him and reconcile him and give him eyes to see that he never lost anything with Jesus, even in that darkest moment when he failed him. In Peter's mind, he failed Jesus, and it was a failure he could never recover from. Do you think Jesus did not, do you think Peter did not remember the words of Jesus when Jesus tells him, I'll make you a fisher of men? Certainly, Peter remembered that, but Peter thought he had disqualified himself from that when he denied Jesus. Jesus is here by the grace of God, to bring Peter back to the place and to help Peter understand that there is nothing Peter could ever do to overshadow, to overcome, to overpower, to destroy God's grace that had already been given to him. And this is what we need to know. This is what we need to understand. We could talk about love just as easily as we could talk about grace. Because love is obvious. This is the point. This is the, this is the, the context. This is the subject of the questions that Jesus is posing to Peter. Do you love me, Peter? But more than love, this is about God's grace. God's promise to save the world is being accomplished through redeemed men like Peter. Jesus is speaking of love in the context of obedience. This is the grace of God working through love in the life of Peter to bring him into obedience to the will of God. The gospel is preached and lived through fallen, frail, and failed humanity that has been redeemed in Christ by God's undeserved grace. Grace that empowers men to do his will. That's what grace does. That's what grace is. Grace is not static. Grace is not just some character trait of God. Grace is active. Grace works. Grace is what moves us. Grace is what draws us. Grace is what grows us. Grace is what saves us. 
The gospel of salvation continues to come to the world through grace, through love and obedience. And our love and our obedience is born out of God's grace that's given to us in Jesus. Grace is supernatural assistance initiated by God for the power and ability to do his will. It is the favor of God bestowed upon the undeserving. That's what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved, but it is freely given. Grace is initiated by God. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God so that no one will be able to boast. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. The divine initiative of grace and grace alone saves us. Grace is never earned. It is always gifted. Don't think for one moment you have earned God's grace because none of us have. In Jesus Christ, God made known a grace so great it is difficult to understand and difficult to accept. This is what Peter was having a hard time with. The difficulty of, of, of accepting the reality of God's grace is seen in this encounter between Jesus and Peter. And God's grace, I want you to hear this, I want you to understand this, God's grace is not dependent upon our acceptance of it. Grace was given to Peter long before Peter knew who Jesus was. Grace was given to Peter long before Peter was called to be a fisher of men. Grace was given to Peter long before Peter made the promise to never deny Jesus, to stand with him even in death. Grace was given to Peter long before Peter denied Jesus. And grace was still with Peter long after the denial. Grace is difficult to accept because grace is undeserved. That very fact that we do not deserve God's grace makes it difficult for us to understand. It makes it difficult for us to accept. Peter was all too aware that he did not deserve God's love nor his grace, though he desperately needed it and he desperately wanted it. He just believed that it was beyond his reach. Grace received is not dependent upon grace understood. Grace is initiated by God and has nothing to do with our understanding of grace. God's grace is beyond our ability to understand. Thankfully, I do not need to understand grace to benefit from it or to be saved by it. We see this very clearly in Peter. Grace is not dependent upon us accepting it. God is not waiting to find out if we are going to receive his grace before he gives it. God initiates grace and he gives grace as he wills. God takes hold of us long before we are able to take hold of his grace. You may say, oh, I'm beginning to understand God's grace more and more. Let me tell you what, grace took hold of you long before you even knew what the word grace was or that it existed. God gives his grace constantly. It is found in every sunrise. It is felt with every breeze. Grace sustains us with every breath. Grace feeds us. Grace clothes us. Grace shelters us. Grace provides the created world and all that is in it for us. Grace reigns on the just and grace reigns on the unjust. Grace is so common that we fail to recognize it. Grace is the divine initiative that comes from the heart of God. It is not just a characteristic of God that he possesses. Grace is the dynamic expression of God's love, mercy, and favor. Grace is never static. Grace is always active. Grace is always at work. 
And never think for one moment that grace is not working in your life because grace right now is working in your life in ways that you can't see, in ways that you don't know, in ways that you don't understand, in ways that will manifest maybe maybe next minute, maybe next hour, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe in the next decade, maybe in the next five decades. I don't know, but God does. Maybe it will manifest in the generations coming after you and you won't even see how God's grace working in you now will manifest in the generations later. Grace was at work as Jesus showed himself to Peter and the other disciples on the seashore that day. Consider the grace surrounding even the timing of Jesus' appearance to Peter. Remember, Peter denies Jesus three times the night Jesus is arrested. And during the third appearance after his resurrection, Jesus questions Peter about his love. Jesus has Peter confess his love three times, one for each denial. The series of three appearances, the three confessions after three denials is not accidental, but intentional as a means of grace for Peter's restoration. Consider the grace involved in the seemingly simple occurrences. The grace of God had them cast their nets on the right side of the boat versus the wrong side. If you've ever fished in a boat and you're fishing there with another person or two, and this guy on the end of the boat is catch, catching fish over here, and you've been fishing over there, inevitably, you know what you're going to do? You're going to try to get close to where he's catching fish. Because you come to the conclusion that you're on the wrong side, and he's on the right side. I know right side here means right versus left, but it was the right side of the boat. Just like it was the first time Jesus told them to do that. The grace of God provided fish and food when there were none. The grace of God provided a warm fire and breakfast. Grace gave them eyes to see and hearts to know that it is Jesus. Grace woke you up this morning. Grace greeted you with the sunshine. Grace greeted you with the breeze. Grace greets you every moment of every day. Can you see it? Do you know it? Do you appreciate it? Do you know that it comes from God? Or is it so common that we can't recognize it? There is the response of grace. It is grace that draws us and elicits our response to Jesus. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Our very response to Jesus is the grace of God. No grace... No response. It is by grace that any of us are able to come to Jesus. It is by grace alone that we recognize and respond to the Lord Jesus. Grace gives us the ability to come to Jesus with eyes to see and legs to walk by faith. Peter's response that morning and the response of all the others was a response in the grace of God. Jesus appeared on that seashore to draw them to himself by his grace, everything Jesus did that morning on the shore of the Sea of Galilee was a work of grace to remind Peter and the others that he had called them to follow him to become fishers of men. The very details of casting their net on the right side of the boat after a long night of fruitless fishing reminded of them of that fateful day in the beginning when they caught so many fish that their their nets began to break. On a day three years earlier, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Christ promised Simon, called Peter, that from now on he would catch men. Now at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Christ is gracefully reminding Peter of that calling to catch men. But more than that, Jesus was calling Peter to not just fish for men, but to shepherd 
his sheep. Remember, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then shepherd my sheep. See, Peter was called to catch men, but now he was being shown by Jesus that you're called to be more than a fisherman, Peter. Even if you are catching men, you are called to shepherd my sheep. The grace of God would never allow Simon to forget those words of Jesus that changed the course of his life and ultimately made him Peter, not only a fisher of men, but a shepherd over the flock of God. God would never allow Peter to return to his boat to fish for fish. Peter was now a shepherd commanded to feed, to shepherd the sheep of God. Peter's response to Jesus did not happen apart from the grace of God. Our response to Jesus does not happen apart from the grace of God. It is grace that kept Peter. It is grace that keeps us. There is the reminder of grace. Grace reminds us. You remember when Jesus told his disciples, it's recorded in John's gospel. He says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. It's to your advantage because he's going to remind you. He's going to call to remembrance all the things that I told you. How did you earn the Holy Spirit? How much did you pay to get the Holy Spirit? Oh, nothing. Because it's priceless. You did nothing. You paid nothing. Because the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's the grace of God given to us. There is the reminder of grace. This whole encounter was orchestrated by the grace of God. There was nothing accidental about anything that occurred between Jesus and Peter and the other disciples on the seashore that morning. Peter, very much like we all do sometimes, made very bold statements about his undying loyalty to Jesus. It was the cock's crow that reminded Peter that his best intentions are powerless apart from God's grace. Upon hearing Jesus tell them they would all stumble because of him, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble... Because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Those are the words of Peter to Jesus. Peter not only pledged he would never stumble, but he pledged that he would lay down his very life for Jesus' sake. His words were true, but not in the way that he meant them at that moment. John 13, 37 and 38, Peter said to him, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And Matthew records Peter's reaction to his denial of Jesus. Matthew 26, 75. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Upon the cock's crow, Peter bitterly realized his failure. It was devastating to Peter, but fully expected by Christ. Do you realize that your failures, my failures, may be a surprise to us, but they are not a surprise to God. Our failures may be disappointing to us, bitterly disappointing, but they are not disappointing to God in the same way they are to us. You might say, I can't believe I did that. God never says of us, I can't believe they did that. You know why? Because God knows us. It shook Peter to the core and it prepared him for the work of grace that God intended to do in Peter. 
a work of grace that would take the bitter providence of that night and forever change Peter's life in a glorious way. It changed him from a fisherman to a shepherd. I would imagine that Peter, for the rest of his life on this earth, upon hearing a rooster crow, would be reminded of God's work of grace in his life. And what a wonderful thing God did. If you've ever been around hens and roosters, you will know how often you can be reminded of God's grace in a day. Beginning very early at the break of first sunlight and continuing throughout the day, if you are within earshot, you can hear the rooster crow. And I believe this, though the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I don't see how it could be any other way. After Peter's denial of Jesus, hearing the rooster crow and realizing that he had just denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus told him. And now Jesus coming to Peter and restoring him. I believe God transformed the crowing of a rooster from something that brought bitterness to Peter to something that brought eternal hope to Peter. It was a reminder of God's grace. God provided a reminder of his grace that would sound many times each day. And Peter would be forever reminded. We too should be reminded that the same grace that worked in Peter is the same grace that works in us. No matter what our past or even our present. Do you hear me? No matter what our past or even our present or our future. God's grace in Jesus Christ is not only sufficient, it is powerfully working to change us, to restore us, and to save us. That is a truth we should be remembered, we should be reminded of every day. Hopefully many times every day. The response of grace, the reminder of grace, the restoration of grace. In his grace, Jesus came to Peter, not to condemn him, but to restore him. This is what Peter thought, that he was going to be condemned by Jesus, but he was not, and neither are you. Not if you're trusting him, not if you're looking to his grace. And Jesus comes to restore Peter, to change him. This is the work of grace. It's a work of restoration. It's a work that changes us. Jesus came to Peter to do a work of grace in Peter's heart and mind. Jesus came to restore Peter in the love of God after Peter's threefold denial of him. This encounter was not to restore Christ's faith in Peter. You realize God doesn't lose faith in you because God doesn't put faith in you. Because God knows there's no reason to put faith in us because we are unfaithful, chronically, apart from the grace of God. This was about restoring Peter's faith in the calling of Christ upon his life that seemed to fall away with each of his denials of Jesus. Though we are so easily shaken, God cannot be moved. When God calls us, he knows our faults and our failures and our sin down to the most small and dirty of details. We don't like to think about that, but that's the truth. We can be surprised by our sin, but God is never surprised for he knows us to the depth of our being. God knows we are prone to wander, prone to fail, prone to fall, but God loves us in spite of those bitter truths about ourselves. We would like to believe that God loves us and accepts us because we are worthy, because we've earned his love and we've earned his trust, but we can do no such thing. Grace cannot be earned. It can only be given. It's never deserved, but always undeserved. This is the scandal of God's grace. He gives us not what we deserve, but what we do not deserve. This is why we can always say with assurance, no matter how our day or how our life is going, that we are better 
than we deserve. Look at the work of grace in Peter's life. The work to restore him to a place from which he believed he had hopelessly fallen. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt like you were beyond God's love, beyond God's redemption? That is a vain imagination. That is not humility. That is pride. How could Christ receive him back and trust him after his bitter denial of Jesus? That question no doubt haunted Peter because Peter did not know the undeserved grace of God. Peter did not yet know the power of God's grace to reconcile him to God. Like most humans, Peter's fundamental belief was that we get what we deserve. Peter did not understand the implications of God's grace or the restoration and the reconciliation that can come only by his grace. It is true we reap what we sow. It is true there are consequences to our actions. And you, Christian, who are a recipient of the grace of God, can suffer the consequences of your actions. You can reap what you sow, but you will never get what you deserve if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and born again and made a new creation in him, you will never get what you deserve because you will not receive the wrath and the judgment reserved for sinners and for a devil who hates and rejects God. You may fail. You may suffer consequences. You may reap bad things. But I promise you, if you are redeemed in Christ, you will never get what you deserve. God has given to you already what you do not deserve. He has given you his grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have now become new. Now... All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. How could Peter go preaching the ministry of reconciliation until he was first reconciled in his own heart and in his own mind? Understand that for Peter, the only place reconciliation had not in reality been accomplished was in his own heart and in his own mind. Peter was already reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He just did not believe it yet. And this is our problem very often. We don't believe God could really forgive us. We don't believe that God could really accept us. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, well, pastor, you just don't know how bad I really am. I don't care how bad you think you are. You're not too bad for God. And if you think you're too bad for God, then you have a very low view of God. And that's not humility. That is your pride exalting yourself and your sin above God. That's a very dangerous place to be. There was no condemnation for Peter in Christ. The only condemnation Peter was feeling came from himself. Jesus came to Peter to remove that condemnation and to restore Peter and to assure him of the reconciliation that was already his by grace through faith in Jesus. This is very often the case with us. We walk through life with condemnation for ourselves. All the while, we are already reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We diminish the power of God's redemption through Christ in our minds by magnifying our own vain imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And this is why we are commanded in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, to take our thoughts captive, to cast down those vain imaginations, to bring our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is what you are commanded to do. This is what Jesus was doing with Peter. 
We somehow take pride in condemning ourselves as if we can atone for our own sin through self-mortification while we should be humbling ourselves before God and crying out to him in thanksgiving for his grace. For it is only by his grace that he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Jesus came to Peter and each time Jesus was aware of the self-condemnation and the hopelessness Peter felt from his own failure. Jesus waited on purpose for the third appearance to question Peter's love for him. For every denial of Christ, Jesus elicits a confession of love. Jesus meets Peter right where he is. And Jesus always knew right where Peter was. And Jesus always knows right where we are. This is the grace of God meeting Peter where he is. This is the grace of God eliciting the response, reminding Peter and bringing Peter to the place of restoration and reconciliation within himself. Once Peter came to know the grace of God, he was ready to go and to take the ministry of reconciliation. Peter was now ready to live for and obey Christ even unto death. Peter had come to know the work of God's grace upon his life. And in that work of grace, Peter came to understand that it is the grace of God alone that is sufficient for him and for all of us. By grace our love and obedience to God continues to carry the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation to the world. By grace, we are saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And so God commands us to take the gospel, to take the ministry of reconciliation. And so we must know that we have been reconciled. We must know that in spite of our failures, in spite of our falling, in spite of our frailty, in spite of our proneness to wander, to want to choose God over everything, but then we find ourselves choosing the thing we promised we would never choose again. We have to know that God's grace is greater than that. That God's grace is at work even right now in us to grow us up into Christ, to change us, to transform us, just like it did Peter, taking Peter from a fisherman, a fish, to a fisher of man and turning him into a shepherd of the flock of God. God is working by his grace in your life, through your life. Don't ever doubt it, believe it, trust it, know it, and thank him for his grace. That is so very great. Amen. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table of the Lord. A table of grace. A table of thanksgiving. A table that God prepared for us and God prepares for us each and every week. Talk about reminders you have no other reminder of God's grace in your life, this table is a reminder. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that your sin is too great, your past too dark, your future too bleak, your present too hopeless. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. Christ overcame. Christ made a way where there was no way. Christ did what was impossible for you or any other human to do. Christ has done it. Christ has already completed it. Christ has already won us the victory, and he has given us that victory by his grace. Christian, as you trust Jesus, as you love him, come to his table, thank him for grace, and celebrate his life by remembering his death. Let's all stand. God gives us grace. Grace calls us, grace reminds us, grace restores us and reconciles us. God gives us grace to respond, grace to love, grace to obey. Do not be like Peter and believe you have fallen too far for God's love and God's grace. We are deficient, but his grace is sufficient.
Stop looking to and taking pride in your deficiencies. Humble yourself and look to his grace. Let his grace set you free from your past, from your present, and from your future. His grace is sufficient. Let his grace set you free to love him, to obey him, to live for him, even until you meet death and death takes you to meet Jesus face to face. It is by grace and grace alone that we have been saved. It is by grace that we live. So live in his grace. Celebrate it. Thank him for it. Revel in it every day. And don't miss the reminders he has placed all around us to hear, to see, to experience. Thank God for his grace, his grace that is so great. Amen.